0: Today, uh, we are beginning a brand new sermon series working through the book of Lamentations of all books. And if you have followed Jesus, or been following Jesus, or been in the church uh, for any amount of time, uh, you know studying through this book uh, isn't very common. Uh, it's not actually even really preached out of, besides a few verses in chapter 3, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Uh, And I would venture to guess, just an educated guess, that a lot of us maybe haven't ever even read this book at all. Like you just had to search through your Bible to see where it even is, because I'm about to ask you to turn there. Um, Or if you have read it, or have somewhat regularly read it, um, it's probably most likely for like that five minutes per year in your one-year Bible plan. Because it takes four minutes and 30 seconds to read. And the reason for that is because this is a really hard book. Um, it's difficult in some ways to understand, but beyond that, it's really sad. Um, it's extremely depressing. Because it records the horrific physical, spiritual, and emotional aftermath of the destruction of an exile of Jerusalem. It's filled with vivid imagery of pain uh, and, and grief, and there are very, very few bright spots in this book. And so now, okay, you're sitting there and thinking, so why are we studying this book then? Uh, weather's changing, you're, some of you are already getting like a little bit of seasonal depression, Like I'm going to help you. <laughs> with that, uh, um, Like, do we have to really study this book? Or if it's so sad and so depressing, like, why is it even in the Bible at all? And, and the short answer to that is that Lamentations helps us to focus on ultimate realities. It, it helps us to focus on what is real, what is true, Uh, One of the famous kings of Israel, King Solomon, he said something interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's It's a very interesting verse. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. He says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. In other words, Solomon says sometimes it's actually better to go to a funeral than it is to go on vacation. It's better for us to go to a funeral than to attend a potluck. Why? Because it's in those dark moments, those kinds of times and seasons. That, that make us realize that life is short. It makes us think about who we are, what we're doing, and where we are going. See, spiritually, you and I, you and I are prone to sleep. Uh, we are prone to drift, drift away from the things of the Lord and his kingdom. But Lamentations helps us to wake up from that tendency towards a spiritual slumber. It helps us to realize the reality of sin and the consequences of that sin. And at the same time, it highlights the the heights and the depths of God's mercy in that sin. And so I want us to think of this next season together uh, in a really simple way. Uh, This is going to be a time, a season, with the help of Lamentations, for us to get real with God, and for God to get real with us. And I believe that this season that we're going to be in with Lamentations um, is going to beautifully lead us right into the season of Advent, into the season of Christmas. And so with that, uh, let me pray for our time together. We need the Lord's help in this book, I promise, okay? Um, the season of working through Lamentations together. So let me, let me pray just for this this time and today, but also for this sermon series. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we acknowledge that uh, we are finite. Uh, We lack wisdom and knowledge and understanding apart from you. And so, Jesus, would you help us today to understand the, the truths of your word, the realities that that come out of this wonderful book of Lamentations. God, we need supernatural understanding. Help us in the midst of a a dark and depressing book to see your mercy, to see your hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, before we jump into this book, uh, I need to provide a bit of setup uh, here, so that we can fully grasp uh, the emotional anguish uh, that's pictured all throughout it. And so, first of all, um, we, we know that this is a book about hurt and pain. It's a book about anguish. Uh, just from the title of the book alone, we actually know that. Lamentations in the, in the Hebrew, it's the word akah, which means literally in English, it means how. Okay, how? And it comes from the very first word um, in this book, the very first chapter. Chapter one, verse one, says this. It starts this way. How lonely sits the city? How? It's a word of despair. And it's meant to be read as both a question while simultaneously being read um, as a shocking statement. In English, it'd be like, I'm asking the question, um, how could this happen with a bit of desperation in there? It means that uh, something has gone wrong. And the very beginning of this book tells us something about the entirety of the book, the content of the book. You see, to lament is to express your pain. Uh, It's to express your pain while you look to God for answers while you look to God for relief, and while you look to God for hope. Uh, lamenting, simple, simply put, is a heartfelt cry of sorrow, and that's certainly what this book is all about. And, and to truly understand why Lamentations even exists, uh, why we have this book at all in, in God's word, we need to understand a bit of the context, a bit of the, of the setting, Uh, We need to place ourselves in the historical timeline that led us to this point. And so let's talk about that. If you could spare me a few minutes to go through this with you. Those of you who have been at Freedom Village, you know this is uh, one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) Give you the history. Give you the lead up of things to start as we start new books. So we know, here's the historical context. We know, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible that God makes this very famous promise that the majority of us knows, a very famous promise to a man named Abraham. In fact, you can almost summarize the entire Bible um, in these verses, in this promise. Everything spills out from this promise. The Lord said to Abraham, he said, leave your country, leave your family to a land that I will show you. And then God says, I'll make of you a great nation, um, I will bless you, and in your blessing, you will be a blessing to others, right? All the families of the earth will be blessed by you, God says. So we see in that promise, uh, four key parts, four key parts in this famous promise that we need to understand, so important for the book of Lamentations, stick with me, Okay? First, first is the land, okay? There's a promise of land. God promises to give Abraham and his descendants land. Second, he promises to make Abraham a new people, a new nation. Third, we see him promise a personal, let's say a personal closeness to this new people. In other words, he promises to be in relationship with them. And then finally, we see that through this new promise, or through this, uh, this new people that God has made for himself, that they are going to be a blessing, okay? They're going to be a blessing. Others will be blessed by them. That's the promise. And I'm going to skip a bunch of details here, because it would take me literally hours to go through the narrative. You should have seen my notes leading into this this week. It was crazy. Uh, This could have been like a four-hour and 45-minute sermon, all right? But I cut it all, all right, for you, right? Because I love you, all right? So I'm going to skip a bunch of details here. But we know from that point forward, that promise, that much of the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how God goes about fulfilling those promises. It, It takes many, many years, but God... He comes through, right? He makes uh, people for himself, the Israelites. God provides a land for these people. That's Israel. God, we we know, makes a unique covenant, a relationship with this new nation, this new people. His physical presence even uh, eventually dwells with them. It's it's amazing. And we know at, at the height of Israel's power, particularly with King Solomon, that guy who said, like, it's better for you to go to a funeral, right? That guy. With King Solomon, not only did God's people have prestige and honor and respect among the nations, but the nations were also being blessed by Israel. Okay, we can read about this in the narrative that they were receiving guidance from Israel, support even financially from Israel. They were receiving Uh, wisdom from the nation of Israel so that they could thrive as well as a nation. And so, after over 1,000 years, after 1,000 years of God's initial promise to Abraham, we see, again, God comes through. God was fulfilling his promise. Now, a very important detail or part of all of this is that God... Made this other side promise. And that was that he promised to continue to bless this people, this nation, as long as they continued to follow him. But, but, if they turned away, if they wandered from him, there would be consequences. Okay, we actually see that warning in Deuteronomy 28. It's really essential, okay? Really essential to our text today in Lamentations 1. Listen to this. It says, if you don't obey the Lord, this is what God says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation, who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. So this was the relationship. And again, Israel was in a a very, very good place with King Solomon. They were thriving, flourishing. But after King Solomon, not so much. Um, It's actually really awful. Awful, actually. We read that, Israel, unfortunately, very sad, um, actually has a civil war. Uh, the nation is divided into two separate kingdoms, okay, Israel and Judah. And then there is just this ongoing, uh, deep descent into darkness for a period of 400 years. This time, it's so sad. It is, it is marked by rebellion, uh, uh, idolatry, unfaithfulness. Uh, the people and the leaders, the kings, um, are turning away from God. They're following their own ambitions and desires. And so God, in his mercy, sends prophets to warn the people to turn back to him. Okay, you can read the major minor prophets about this. He, God loves his nation, his people, the people he has this relationship with. He loves them so much that he asks them begs them, pleads with them, stop what you're doing and come back to me. They hear what God is saying, but they don't listen. They refuse. They refuse his warnings over and over and over and over again. And so finally, we find that God has had enough. And the consequence comes. And it is absolutely devastating. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We read there that the Babylonians, their army, which is the most powerful of the day, they come, they swoop in like that eagle. They invade Jerusalem, the capital city, the temple uh, where the presence of God used to dwell, that temple is stripped of everything that it has. All the gold, all the items, the special handcrafted items for worship, all of it is gone, stolen, taken. And along with that, the rest of the city is literally set on fire and burnt to the ground. Thousands and thousands are killed. And the rest of the people who remain. Besides the very poorest, who were just left on their own to die, very brutal, the rest of the people are taken, chained up, and marched back to Babylon. And so, please understand, as we study through this book together in this season, that we are not just reading about some ordinary defeat here. This is not just um, one bad battle gone wrong, OK? This is God seemingly severing, taking away His promises from his people. That's how they interpreted this. It, it's so serious. The, the defeat that we are entering into, it was a complete loss of identity for the Israelites. In fact, they refer to it as the day of the Lord. It was that severe. All that they had hoped for, for over a thousand years, all those promises was in an instant gone, taken from them. They they no longer have a people. They, They don't have a land. God has seemingly broken the relationship with them and certainly, they are no longer a blessing to others. And it's out of this devastation and destruction, all of the, the fire and smoke coming out of this city, that the cry of lamentations arises. It is a dark, dark book. It is five chapters, which are five poems. And it's not so much a... Here's why it's unique. It's not so much a description of what happened. There's a lot of other books in the Bible that do that. Lamentations more so tells us how the devastation felt. And so for those of you in this room that are feelers today, uh, you're going to feel this. It is carefully thought out grief that truly serves as a wake-up call for each and every one of us. And in that, it is a wonderful book. It gets us to ask questions like, do I care about my sin? Do I grieve over my sin? Am I indifferent, passive, about the things of God? Lamentations is going to to get us to think about and consider when was the last time you were moved to tears over sin? Or moved to tears over the grace of God for your sin? Lamentations brings us under this dark, dark cloud. But in the end, we will see God's light break through. We will see his mercy. Um, Lamentations will show us that no matter how hopeless things seem, no matter how far things seem gone, how bad things get in our life, God isn't finished with us. And that makes this book worth pausing, worth considering, worth studying for the next month and a half. So let's open this up together. By the way, the author of the book of Lamentations is who? Anonymous. Okay. Uh, tradition normally associates it with Jeremiah, so some of you answered Jeremiah. However, uh, there is enough doubt on that that it's safer to leave it anonymous. Okay. And it was written during, maybe right in the middle of, or at the very if you're being more not as conservative, very, very shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 587 BC, okay? So we're going to read this now, at least the first two verses. And what I want you to do, uh, I'm going to paint this picture for you, and I want you to just enter into the story. What I want you to do is, I want you to just picture, because this is the setting, this is what happened, this, this individual sitting on a hill outside of the city. And this individual is looking into Jerusalem. He's looking at the destruction of Jerusalem and God's holy temple. The smoke is still rising. And in chapter one, it's all about the brokenness of the world and the holiness of God. It starts like this Lamentations chapter one, verse one. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So again, we see that word, how, there. Uh, The despair starts right from the beginning. And the picture that we see from these first two verses is this city that's being portrayed as a broken, lonely widow whose life has taken an extremely tragic turn. Jerusalem, the city, used to be thriving. It used to be full of people. It used to be great amongst the nations. It was famous. The author author says, Jerusalem was a princess amongst the nations. But now, she has become a slave. There is so much sorrow here. You see that? The city is literally weeping. She's been abandoned and opposed. And what's more, the people of Judah have been brought into captivity and exile. We see that actually in verse 3. You're going to want a copy of God's word out in front of you today, okay? You should always have it, but you're going to have to skim through it. We see that in verse 3, that the once glorious nation of God's chosen people, They were together, unified, strong. They are now scattered. We are told the people have no rest. They have been totally decimated to the point in verse 4 that he says, even the roads themselves are mourning. They are crying. And then we see the central, that central to the pain of this lament is the fact that their enemy has won. It wasn't just a battle loss. It was a a war loss. They've been defeated, conquered. Verse 5 even goes as far as to say, we have it on the screen, it says this, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. And at this point, one of the questions we should all be asking is, why? (laughs) Why has all of this happened? What is the cause of all this pain, all of this distress? Well, we we see that here as we continue in verse 5 and elsewhere. It says this, Because the Lord has afflicted her, Jerusalem, for the multitude of her transgressions. In other words, God himself is behind all of this. And it is happening. God is allowing this to happen, if you will, using the Babylonians, if you will, because of the sin of his people. And we see this theme continue throughout the entirety of the chapter. Verse 8 says that Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Or verse 9, it says her uncleanness, that's her sin, was in her skirts. Uh, That's a Interesting way to say it, but it simply means that sin clung closely to her, that Jerusalem, the city, the the people were not just sort of fooling around with sin, toying with sin. No, no, no. They were holding on, gripping, grasping at their sin. Or, Or verse 14 says, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. That is, you can see it on like the oxen, the yoke that holds them together. By his hand, the Lord's hand, they were fastened together. They were set on my neck. The author says that all of these consequences of God's, uh, that God's people were receiving, all of them were actually laid on their backs and tied to them. They were set to bear them by God himself. He's like, oh, you want to continue in your sin? unrepentant again and again, then take your sin and I'm going to tie you to your sin. So, so again, what, what's being, being made very plain to us here is that all of this discipline, this divine severe discipline is the result of their sin. In effect, they defeated themselves by saying no to God by turning away from the Lord continuously. And it it must also be said that the tragedy here is not just individual. We need to notice this. Those of us, especially coming from the West, we have such individualistic idea of faith. We don't see that here. This sin affected an entire nation. And that's what makes this scene so horrific. It says, all the people groan." as they search for bread in verse 11. So this is not just about the depth of the devastation. It's also lamentations about the breadth of that devastation. It's all encompassing. Even those who who may have been righteous in the land, and maybe there were a few, we don't know, but even they were caught up in this. Their lives came to ruin as well. And then the final movement in Lamentations 1 is this prayer and this really unique plea for mercy. And in that, we see the author continues to convey his shock at all of this, all that he's seen. And look at the depths of his pain here. He says this in verse 12. He says, look and see if there is any sorrow like my Sorrow. In other words, there, there's no one who's suffering like us. Or the next verse, from on high the Lord sent fire into my bones. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. So so you can see the, the, the anguish and the pain here. We can actually feel, feel how much. Rejection is felt in this text. If you continue reading, it says that they are crushed, that they are weeping, bawling their eyes out, and there is zero, zero percent of comfort, none. And worst of all, God has, for now, turned against them. Can you imagine? This city, Jerusalem, it's said... It had become so filthy, so dirty in the eyes of the Lord that they had actually become untouchable. That's the picture that's being painted here. They're so ceremonial, if you can say it this way, ceremonially unclean, so unpure, so unholy that God can't cannot put his presence there. He turns away. And I do think it's worth asking, Uh, we'll take a second to pause, I do at this point think it's worth asking in light of all this devastation, is all of this too severe? Um, Or or perhaps, is this just? For God to be punishing his own people like this, uh, it can seem cruel, right? Right? Um, in some ways, may, maybe almost too harsh. But in verse 18, we get our answer to that question. Is this just? Is this too severe? And this is actually a major turning point in chapter 1. If you want the pivotal verse in chapter 1 as you read through it, try to sort through it for yourself, verse 18 is the turning point. It's the pivot in chapter 1, chapter, uh, the pivot of the poem. After describing the, the happenings but more so describing the emotions of all that went along with this devastation, comes this absolutely stunning statement. The author says this, "'The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity.'" The author says, the Lord is right. You can circle that, underline that, highlight that. It's essential as we go through lamentations. The Lord is right. Why? For we have rebelled. So here we see this acknowledgement of wrong. Um, Let's call this, because it is, this is a confession. And it's pretty incredible, especially, again, in light of What has previously been said. Like we might expect the author, it would be normal actually, for the author's response to be one of anger towards God. To maybe say, this is how I feel, you've done all this, all this pain, this is how I feel, and you're being unfair. Why are you doing all this to us? So why isn't the author responding that way? Well, I think that there are two reasons for that. And that is that the author understands the deceitfulness of sin, okay, our broken world, along with the holiness of God. So I wanna take the time to look through those really briefly, starting with, again, the deceitfulness of sin, okay? If you're taking notes, there's just two points today. Deceitfulness of sin, the holiness of God. So we'll start with the deceitfulness of sin, And this is going to show us the brokenness of our world. Look again at verse 2. We already read this, but look at it again. The author says this, Among all her lovers. That phrase, lovers, is also key to the text. Central to chapter 1. So circle that as well. Among all her Jerusalem's lovers, she has none to comfort her. And then in verse 19, after that pivotal verse, we see that same word. says this, I called out to my lovers, but they deceived me. Now listen, uh, in the Old Testament, we know that the term or the phrase lovers was a metaphor for the idols of the pagan nations that Israel chose to follow over God. And God uses this word to say to them, do you understand what you're doing? You are committing spiritual adultery against me. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see that this theme actually over and over again, this constant back and forth. God warns them. The people go astray. God continues to despite their sin, continues to love them, continues to rescue them, continues to bring them back to himself, but then they turn and leave him again. Over and over and over again, we see this pattern. And and notice what the author is saying here about these lovers, these idols, okay? He's saying that they are empty, simply put. These idols are empty, they don't comfort, And, and more than that, they deceive or have deceived the people. What he is saying is, while these idols appear so valuable, they seem so attractive, in the end, they always lead you to the same place, ruin. They promise you everything. They seem so right. But in the end, they cause you to lose everything. And that's how idols work in all of our lives, not just here for Israel, in all of our lives. Look, we know this, we know this to be true. Anything other than God, the one true living God of the universe in all of his supreme majesty and glory and grace and in mercy and holiness, anything other than him that we think is essential to our joy, to our value, for our acceptance and contentment, is an idol. It's a God substitute. Uh, The famous uh, theologian, Martin Luther, once said this about our idols. He says this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That to which your heart clings, that to which your heart entrusts itself to, ultimately is your real God. That's an idol, and let's understand idols aren't just idols aren't just things that we consider uh, bad. Okay, um, like when we think of idols, we think of things like people worshiping totem poles, okay, or or statues, or like a Buddha, right? Um, or they're going after these really harsh things, like uh, various forms of addiction can be an idol, right? Idols can be those things. But they can also even be good things that God has given us that our hearts turn and twist into being God things, into being ultimate things in our lives. You see, good things in our lives are, we'll say it this way, good things in our lives are meant to be like a mirror that point us back to the ultimate good thing. But what our hearts tend to do is, again, make those good things God things. And friends, this isn't just a problem for some people. It's a problem for all people. It's a problem for Christian and non-Christian, ancient people and modern people. We make idols out of our careers, we, we make idols out of trying to climb the corporate ladder. We, we build our lives upon rest and comfort. We build our lives on our appearances. We go after things like money above and, every, and over everything else. Right? And listen, if we're not careful, we can even make idols out of our families, out of our kids, where our identity, our actual, our personhood, who we are is wrapped up in in how they turn out and how they compare to others. Anything can be an idol, right? There are so many fleeting, deceptive lovers in our world. They promise us everything and yet they deliver on nothing. They only lead us further and further and further away from God. And, and hear me, hear me now. Some of you are here today. You've come into this place, singing some songs, listening to the word, got the Sunday thing going, and you are actually, in the depths of your heart, you are wondering why you're not experiencing the deep joy, the deep-seated joy of the Lord in your life. Why? Why am I experiencing this amazing joy that everyone around me seems to be singing about and excited about? Could it be that your heart is actually clogged up with idols? Actually, there's a really good chance that that's the case for you. That's the answer. Idols promise fulfillment, security, approval, worth, value, but inevitably they will let us down 100% of the time. You know what it's like? It's like, it's like trying to squeeze water out of a rock. See, you, you, can never, you can never squeeze true life out of a created thing because created things don't actually hold life within themselves. You can't get something or something out of something that some, that thing doesn't have. You following me? Right. And yet, this is exactly what we do time and time again, isn't it? We squeeze away. We squeeze those rocks. Right. This is who we are. We are idolaters. Okay. You came here this morning. Things are changing. Weather. Oh, it's cold. What am I going I need encouragement today. You're an idolater. <laughs> By nature and choice, we trivialize God. We trivialize, we are flippant about his ways. By nature and choice, we do not think that he is enough. We do not gladly, gladly, worshipfully submit our lives to him. We are, oh, this is so sad. We are so unmoved by his love. We are so unmoved by his grace and his mercy and his Majesty. And again, let me be very clear. We're not just talking about non-believers here. This is a message for Christians, for followers of Jesus. Lamentations is evidence of this. I told you this book was hard, okay? It's uncomfortable. But it's meant to wake us up to the reality that what we seek from in this world or what we seek from this world can only be found in God. Idols are deceitful lovers and lamentation shows us where following those idols lead. So what you need to hear here is that God is not just trying to give us a hard time. Like he's not nagging. He's not punishing people for punishment's sake. Not at all. He is coming after our idolatry because he is actually a jealous lover, we are told. He wants your heart. And beyond that, he is serious about your joy. He's so serious about your happiness, both now and forever. He wants you to have joy. God God does not want us living in a place of deception. He does not want us living in a place of of emptiness. He doesn't want you to lack joy and fulfillment in your life. He doesn't want us to waste our lives on things that can never satisfy the longings of our hearts and of our souls. And so he did what was necessary to wake up his people. He intervened very harshly. That's what we see here in Lamentations. So we consider consider here the brokenness of our world, the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of our idols. And now let me just say a quick word about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. This will be very short, and then I'm going to land the plane. Look back again with me at verse 18, that pivotal verse. The author says there, he says, the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. So we see here a clear understanding that God is right here. As tragic as this is, as devastating as this is, God was being just. This is correct discipline, you might say. In this statement, there is this this understanding that God is holy, that he is perfect in love, He's perfect in his grace. He's, he's perfect in his, his mercy. He's the fountainhead, we know, of all that is good, all that is right, all that is just. And this is really, really important for us to understand that when you and I, when we see one of God's attributes manifested, like here in Lamentations, right? What are we seeing? What attribute are we seeing here in Lamentations? We're seeing his wrath, right? Right? When you see one of God's attributes like wrath manifested, that doesn't mean that he lets go of or turns off all of his other attributes, okay? And that's why despite the destruction, despite the pain, the author here can actually say with conviction, the Lord is right. Because God never does anything wrong. And because he is holy, he must Discipline all wrongdoing, all sin, all rebellion, not just because he enjoys it, okay? He doesn't, but because it is just and good to do so. And if he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be good. And we see more of this understanding at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 22 with me. It says there, let all their evil doing come before you, let their wrongdoing stand before you, God, and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. This, this lament here ends, it ends, it closes, this poem closes with this plea, this begging for justice to be done. It acknowledges that God has proven to be just in the past He's proving to be just in the punishment of Israel. And so there is this longing now for God to continue in his justice. In the midst of all the chaos and all of the confusion, again, you can picture the author here sitting on top of this hill. He's watching people die, watching his friends and his family be taken away. The city and the temple are set ablaze. There's smoke rising from the city. And yet, despite all of that brokenness, he sees, he sees that God is holy and that God is just. He pens as he's watching. God is right. Now, let me close with this. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. We get insight because we weren't there and we wouldn't know what happens later, okay, after. Here's what we know. What's happening here to God's people is not a permanent rejection. They believe that it was. They thought, the the author believes this is it, it's over. The relationship is done. They don't know that it's not over, but we do. This is correct discipline because of the people's sin. That's what we know. God, again, I've said this before, I'm going to say this again. God was willing to do whatever it took to get at his people's hearts. He was willing to do whatever it took to exalt his glory over all things, even if it meant seemingly needing to start over again. And so Christian you you need to know that he will do the same for us. That actually, sometimes he does do the same for us. That's why, by the way, when we first meet Jesus, when we first meet Christ, he makes us totally new. He gives us a new heart, right? We start over, we're born again. And it's why many times in our faith journey, he will call us to go back, Remember, the author said, He turned me back. Many times, God will turn you back because many times we forget our first love. We forget our first love, and so we need to go back to the place where we started with Him. See, God loves us too much to leave us as we are for long. He will come after you. So, this is the beginning of Lamentations. It's really heavy. But it teaches us that our world is broken and that sin has very real and devastating consequences, not only on a personal level, but on a corporate community level as well. Sin is deceptive. It ruins us and it ruins those around us. So together, together in this season, I want to commit this this time, this season together in a unique way. Again, I want this to be a season for us to, to get real with God and let God get real with us and our hearts. For some of us, this will just be a, a minor adjustment, a minor reorientation, a small shift, maybe a degree. For others of us, this will be a radical reorientation, a, a big turn. But either way, every single one of us needs to be reoriented, right? Right? For every single one of us, there are ways that we need to be throwing off sin and becoming more like Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, as we look at our lives, as we examine our hearts, what are the things that we need to throw away? What are the things that we need to throw out? Are there any idols clogging the intake pipes of our heart? Are there things blocking us from experiencing all that God has for us in Jesus, is there something in your life that's that's blocking you from experiencing that joy do do we do we genuinely grieve over our sins are we are we actually astonished by the grace of god hear me today god loves he loves a heart loves a heart that goes to him humbly weak honest and in need but he is god is repelled by pride. So the way forward for all of us isn't actually a mystery as we enter into this season and work through lamentations together. God hasn't made this complicated. Thank the Lord. It's good news. This isn't complicated. All you have to do today is turn from your deceitful lovers. All you have to do today is turn from your idols and trust the only real lover of your soul, Trust the one who will never let you down. Right? God does not want us living in deception today. He doesn't want our hands to be empty. He doesn't want us to, to waste our lives. So together, let's commit to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond our sin. Let's commit in this season to look beyond any idols. Let's look beyond our shame, and let's look to him, the one who is right, right the one who is good. Amen? Let me pray for you.